This is The Guardian. Has Rishi Sunak managed the impossible? I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. After years of tension and promises that Brexit would finally be done, the Conservatives seem to think that everything is now finished with a deal that supposedly solves the nightmare of the Northern Irish border. But will the Democratic Unionist Party accept it? We will continue to engage with the government and we will take our time. So what's different about this deal from the one that came before it? And is there a catch? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former Downing Street Chief of Staff and current Conservative peer, Gavin Barwell, and the Guardian columnist, Raphael Baer. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Hello, John. Uh, let's talk about someone that um, some of us thought we'd seen the back of, Matt Hancock, who not so long ago cooperated with the journalist Isabel Oakeshott on his pandemic diaries. She has now passed a huge number of WhatsApp messages that I guess she must have amassed in the course of, of putting that book together with him. She's passed them to the Daily Telegraph who have begun their coverage with the allegation that Hancock rejected expert advice on COVID testing in care homes. We should make it clear from the start that a spokesperson for Mr Hancock has said the texts have been doctored and messages had been spun to fit an anti-lockdown agenda. Gavin, how would you feel if they were your private messages? Well, I like to think, John, that if I were writing a book, I wouldn't choose the journalist most hostile to the key policy I was associated with to collaborate on on the book. Um, so I can, uh, like I said, he's feeling very angry about it. There's a real breach of trust. Um, on the substance of the issue, I think we're probably all going to have to wait till the COVID inquiry, all these messages have been shared with the inquiry. And I think before we form a judgment on his performance on that issue, we need to uh, rely on a more honest appraisal of all of that data than we might have had this morning. Yeah. It does sort of compound this sense of British public life right now being a sort of grim pantomime, Raph, doesn't it? One farce after another. No, and there, I mean, there are many layers to the sort of horribleness of this. I mean, from a, as you say, from a journalistic point of view, uh, it is the most extraordinary dereliction of 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 duty and responsibility to someone who was involved in in ghost writing a book. I mean, it, it seems to me sort of such some aggressively unprofessional behaviour. Uh, and even if there's a sort of public interest defence, I, I imagine. You know, Matt Hancock will will feel immensely aggrieved. And I think the problem that he has politically is uh, it will be hard for him to conjure much sympathy for a, a terrible breach of his privacy uh, when <laughs> one of the things he's most known for is putting the interests, his duty to his constituents aside so he can go, I'm a celebrity and sort of breaching his own privacy quite egregiously. So it's just not, it's not a pretty story at all. To say the least. Right, we'll be talking about what is in the new deal on Brexit in Northern Ireland and the reaction to it. Before we get into the politics of all this with Gavin and Raf, um, I thought we'd start by looking at what we know about this deal and how significant it is with Lisa O'Carroll, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent. Hello, Lisa. Hi, John. Here we go again. In very Here we go again, yeah. In broad brush terms, just tell me about your sense of the significance of what has happened, the extent to which it changes everything or doesn't. Okay, so you can say it doesn't absolutely does not go as far as the Eurosceptics, the ERG or the DUP want it. However, it is really significant in that Rishi Sunak has got the European Union to do something that they vowed they would not do, 
which is to reopen the protocol um, and actually change the text, which requires legislation both in the UK and in Europe. So it will go to the European Parliament. Um, that's really significant. So um, I think what they didn't do, which was interesting, was do a kind of spreadsheet of what wins they got from the EU. But I think if you did that, you'd find there was quite a few significant ones. Now, not everybody agrees that the wins are quite the wins that Rishi Sunak has said. You know, the language around it has been quite careful. Talked about, you know, it removes a border down the Irish Sea rather than removes a border down the Irish Sea, etc. Lisa, explain the two key aspects of this deal. Let's start with green and red lanes and the new arrangements for trade between the EU, Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Okay, so it's a bit like um, the green and red and previous blue channels in an airport. So if you've got nothing to declare as a trader and you're, you're taking goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland on a ferry, you come off and you go through a green lane. What determines who goes through the green lane has been set out in this deal by Rishi Sunak. So anybody who's supplying goods, they're going to be literally consumed in Northern Ireland on terra firma in Northern Ireland. That's supermarkets, corner shops, wholesaler cash and carries, canteens and schools, hospitals. If it's consumed there, there are no checks. The red lane will be for any business that, that is using products that will go into a process, like in manufacturing or in food production, that will produce a product that is there, then exported into the EU or goes over the border into Ireland. Um, and businesses are saying quite a few businesses will end up using the red lane a lot more than the green lane if they're not sure and that they just want to do one round of paperwork. Okay. And as Rishi Sunak said yesterday, Northern Ireland, unlike England and Scotland and Wales, has the best of all worlds. It has access. It is part of the single market of the United Kingdom. And it also has access to the EU single market. Well, isn't that extraordinary? Um, because people were, were remarking, well, that's what the UK had before Brexit. So the question is... Was Rishi a soft Brexiter um, or a hard Brexiter? Clearly, he's extolling the virtues of the soft Brexiter camp we're promoting, even under the Johnson government. And it's something that, you know, R Remain and the EU have been banging on about for the past three years. Look, Northern Ireland is now in an absolutely unique position. So if you're a foreign investor, why choose Manchester is the argument, choose Belfast. You can export to both markets. Could be boom times ahead in that sense for Northern Ireland. And then tell me... Uh, it your sense, really, of the Stormont break, what it is and how it's going to work. Yeah, so the Stormont break is really interesting. Previously, the DUP and the ERG's single biggest objection to the protocol is that EU law applied in Northern Ireland. So under the Stormont break, any new regulations or updates of existing law can be blocked by 30 members out of 90 that sit in the Stormont Assembly. Now, once they decide that the EU rule is something that they don't want, that law will be disapplied automatically. Then the UK government has a veto to make that permanent. Um, if the EU and the UK um, agree that actually they are really abusing that power in Northern Ireland and actually that EU law is really, really sensible, the EU and the UK have the power to, to make it apply. But Downing Street was stressing last night that the whole idea behind this is that the UK government and Stormont work together, which again is something new. You know, the Westminster is very, very rarely interested in Northern Ireland. So, you know, that comes back to the point that we were making before about this deal. It's seen as an organic, dynamic deal that will change over time, as opposed to the protocol, which was just an end stage, a full stop to Brexit. 
the Brexit the withdrawal agreement. What's your sense right now of whether or not the DUP will accept this and devolved government will return to Northern Ireland? Well, the DUP are keeping their powder dry. Um, Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader, has done quite a few interviews saying we will take time. He's being very cautious. They have their um, legal experts that they are consulting. I spoke to one person in the DUP yesterday who suggested it could take a long time before they arrive at a decision. But others around the DUP say they think they they will give it a fair wind, but they think they will um, support it. But there's a lot of internal party management to be done, um, including dealing with the executive, the officials and MPs like um, Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley, who, you know, Ian Paisley was straight out denouncing the storm and break, you know, the, the most eye-catching part of the, the deal that Sunak unveiled on Monday. So, the, you know, the party is split, but it's always been, it's been, you know, in terms of, you know, if, if you compare the DUP to Sinn Féin, which is, you know, talks about goals in, in, in decades time, the DUP is a very short-term party in comparison to the likes of Sinn Féin or, say, the SNP. They are very undisciplined. Is that to say, therefore, that you expect the lion's share of the deal sooner or later to be accepted by the DUP and the whole thing, therefore, to have, to be proved successful? I think, I think yes, because if the, if the ERG cannot mount a significant rebellion and it passes in the House of Commons without the DUP, it's law. And the DUP don't have an option. So they, the one thing they've got coming up, which will be a test of, of their policy on the protocol, will be the local elections in Northern Ireland, which have been deferred because of the coronation. They're being held on the 19th of May, and that will be the first test of their, you know, year-long policy to boycott power sharing in protest against the protocol. But I think, you know, speaking to, to MPs around here in Westminster this week and last, there's a general feeling that even if the DUP said no, that they would eventually come round and go back into Stormont because there's a need for them to do it, to, you know, to sign off on the budget, to, to progress, you know, health policies, at the cost of living crisis continues, you know, things that really matter to voters. Last question. The hype surrounding this, both in sections of the media and in the sort of parliamentary Conservative Party, is that Brexit is now done. This was the last sort of crease to be ironed out, and here we are, and it's sort of finished, and we all emerge from it. That isn't the case, is it? No, Brexit is absolutely not done. Um, the withdrawal agreement has just been redone. And as Leo Varadkar is, you know, is keen to say, Brexit is a bit like climate change. It's going to be talked about forever. You're going to be the Brexit correspondent for some time to come. <laughs> not sure about that, John. <laughs> Might be after your job. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. Anyway, thank you for being so generous with your time, Lisa. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Right, let's move on to the, the body of today's episode. Rishi Sunak has finalised the so-called Windsor framework with Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, centred on the so-called Northern Irish Protocol. And when it was all done and dusted, this is what Rishi Sunak said. Today's agreement is written in the language of laws and treaties. But really, it's about much more than that. It's about stability in Northern Ireland. It's about real people and real businesses. It's about showing that our union that has lasted for centuries can and will endure. Right, Gavin and Raf, I wonder whether there was anything about this deal that surprised either of you. Gavin, first of all. Uh, I thought he, he got a better deal than I thought he was going to be able to get. I think he deserves huge credit for it. Look, there's a lesson here for politicians across the spectrum in the UK. It turns out that attention to detail and um, behaving courteously to the people that you're negotiating with and not behaving in bad faith 
pays dividends. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> um, and you know, the transformation in what he's been able to achieve compared with where we were getting to under the previous regime and the way it was behaving is quite staggering. So I think he deserves a lot of credit. He's taken a significant political risk trying to do this. There was obviously a chance that lots of Conservative MPs might not be happy with where he's landed. It looks like that risk has paid off. So I would give him significant credit for that. I think it opens up the chance to improve our relationship with the EU on a number of issues. We shouldn't go over the top. It doesn't change the fundamental trading relationship between Great Britain and the EU, but it is a necessary step in normalising the relationship. And hopefully, we'll come on to this in a second, the DUP will see sense and return into government and it will allow us to restore the the devolved institutions in Northern Ireland. We really will. Uh, before we get to the DUP, Raph, some glowing verdict from you? Um, I'm certainly both surprised and quite impressed by specifically the Stormont break, which was the bit that was the sort of most secret kept under wraps and revealed as a genuine departure from the EU position. But what's interesting about that is it's not something that was available in the kind of Michel Barnier uh, era, uh, precisely because what Rishi Sunak appears to have brought to the table, and I'm told by people very close to the commission that this is very much the case, is a sort of an expectation of proportionality and goodwill and a very explicit willingness to recognise that there is a legitimate EU perspective on this problem. Uh, and that conceptually is something that simply Boris Johnson refused to have, uh, that wasn't available with this trust. So there is a, basically a trust dividend has been delivered to into this negotiation. And Rishi Sunak got that and he got that crudely speaking, by thinking more like a Remainer. I mean, we know he was a lever and he was not, he wouldn't thank me for saying that. But by sort of, as Gavin said, understanding that actually the interests of the UK are achieved uh, by seeking intimacy, trust and working on the diplomacy. And, and, he, and he did that. And unfortunately, that's a bit awkward for all the people who said, no, the, the EU only understands a loaded gun and threats the only thing that delivers results. That turns out to be the opposite of the truth. Raph is right, but I think some other ch- things have changed as well that are important, that have, that have led the EU to shifting its position. And there's three of them. Back when I was involved in 2017, 2018, they were genuinely worried that Brexit might be a contagion. They had a US president that was hostile to the EU. They were worried that other countries might follow us out. So they took a very hardline sort of maximalist approach. I, I don't think they're worried now that other people are going to be tempted to follow our example. That makes a big difference. Secondly, one of the key things Richie did beyond the change in tone and approach was he started sharing the live customs data of goods moving between GB and NI. And that allowed the EU to see that the risk to their single market was much less than they feared. And then finally, they've seen what the protocol has done to the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. And whether you're angry with the DUP about that or not, they have a shared interest in trying to restore that. And I think all of those things taken together have led to a shift in the EU position. Right, let's talk about the DUP. We'll begin by listening to Geoffrey Donaldson, that party's leader, um, and his response to the deal. Well, first of all, I think the DUP can take credit for the fact that uh, we even got to this uh, point. After all, the EU were saying at one stage there'll be no renegotiation. Uh, Those who um, were the protocol implementers in Northern Ireland were saying, you know, it's a waste of time. Um, But we need to consider very carefully uh, the text, the legal text associated with this agreement, the political declaration. We've only just received those documents within the past Uh, hour Um, and so we will take our time 
uh, to examine them, to assess what they mean in practice for Northern Ireland and our place within the United Kingdom. Let's start really by establishing how much power the DUP has in the midst of all this and the specific question of what changes, if any, the DUP could conceivably ask for. I don't think the PM has any intention of going back and further renegotiating this. I think this deal is as good as it gets. And I think that the DUP, like in, in one sense, John, I have a lot of sympathy for the DUP because you know what they what they want is Northern Ireland to be treated the same as England, Scotland and Wales. And I think if you look at where they come from politically, you can understand that entirely. But the, where I part company with them is they've never faced up to what that means. If that is your guiding principle, if you're pro-Brexit and you want Northern Ireland to be treated the same as England, Scotland and Wales then you have to be for a very soft Brexit. You can't simultaneously be for a hard Brexit and think that you can't have any separate arrangement for Northern Ireland. Because if that is the case, if, if, you, you know, if you're stuck with the Johnson deal and you have Northern Ireland treated the same as England, then there are checks on goods as they move between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Because there are currently checks when goods move between England and Ireland. I don't think they have leverage now. I think Sunak is determined to implement this deal. He wants them to get back into government, but he's not going to go back to the table if they say no and try and get more. And there isn't more that can be got. They have a problem, which is that, they, yes, they are influential in the process. They are the, the leading uh, unionist voice politically, and they are entitled to the deputy you know, leading position uh, in Storm because of the most recent results. But they are fishing in a very fixed pool of voters now. And... Their only real competition to control that fixed pool of voters is people who are even yeah, more hardline yeah. than them. And so they are now, they are, which puts them in an incredibly difficult position. Now, I don't like their politics or their position. And I think ultimately it was incredibly short-sighted of them to think their interests were served by backing Brexit in the first place. As still less a Boris Johnson president, still less trusting Boris Johnson at all to deliver any kind of Brexit uh, with their interests. Um, but though that being the case, and given the electoral constraints they're working in, they are in a corner. And it doesn't surprise me that in that corner, the, the only sort of leverage they have is obstruction. There is a difference between the storm on DUP and the Westminster DUP. The storm on DUP wants to get the assembly back up and running and to do their jobs. Westminster DUP has an interest in the devolved institutions not being there because they're more influential when there isn't devolved government in Northern Ireland. That tension has been there right from the start of Brexit. Does that reflect your dealings with the DUP when you were working in Downing Street? Was that among among the things that you became acquainted with while you were while you were dealing with them? Yes, and in and in, in in addition to that, they're they're obviously a relatively small party in UK terms, and they don't like to be split. And so the result is that the, there is a range of opinions within the DP, and the hardliners like Sammy Wilson and, and Ian Paisley exercise undue influence because they don't want to be split in the way they approach this. There is also a yeah, there's a contrast, John, with what I experienced. If you remember when Theresa was Prime Minister, Sinn Fein were refusing to serve in the executive, and I had the DP coming in every day saying it's outrageous that Northern Ireland doesn't have a government. It's damaging to the interests of the people of Northern Ireland. What are you going to do about it? And yet here we are today with them behaving in exactly the same way. It's obviously the next step. You know, if if this deal settles down and we then move on to the question of the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland, you've then got an, uh, the key thing, it seems to me, that uh, very influential elements within the DUP uh, are worried about which is the, the prospect of Sinn Féin having the first minister and all that. I mean, that's the next step in this, which is big, right? They say that they, they're not so concerned about that, that ultimately you know, that is the result of the election. Frankly, I find that hard to believe, that the, the symbolism of, being, of playing second to Sinn Féin, I'm sure, exercises them a lot more than they say. Do you think that, Gavin? 
I, yes, I do. Although there is a counterpoint, which is it allows them at the next NI elections that, you know, as, as Raf was saying earlier, they fish in a certain pond and it will allow them at the next elections to say to that pond, if you don't want Sinn Féin to stay as the first minister, unionist voters have to align behind one unionist party. Otherwise, we end up again where we are right now. Yeah, the other thing that's relevant here is that the DUP's main concern, for the reasons that Gavin mentioned earlier, it, it was the, the GB Northern Ireland border, customs border in the Irish Sea, because that literally and symbolically does represent a kind of detachment of Northern Ireland from the Union. And I can see how that's a massive affront to their sense of uh, national identity and their sense of connection to the UK. It was English Conservatives who sort of amplified and turned the separate issue of court of you know, CJEU, European Court jurisdiction, you know, Brussels pinching the Britain's pocket of sovereignty, the David Frost view that of absolutely puritanical having to scrub every single residue of European regulation from the face of the UK that then got fed back into the DUP and became one of their more animating grievances. That wasn't what started out as their grievance. Gavin, you're shaking your head, but I got the feeling that so, so yes the, and no. Jacob Rees-Mogg and friends sort of lit that fire a bit under the DUP. But they amplified it. But but what your point here exposes, is, which is something I think doesn't get picked up very much, is that the interests of the DUP and the ERG are not aligned. And one of the things that the DUP worries about is that if you have an ERG-style Brexit and GB begins to diverge significantly from EU regulatory standards, then the gap between Northern Ireland and GB opens up a lot. If you have a you know, the kind of Brexit Theresa was trying to pursue where you stay aligned, essentially, then that gap doesn't open up. So the regulatory thing wasn't as big an issue. And the CJU definitely wasn't as big an issue. You're right. But but it's been expanded by this desire to diverge. Let us pause here for a minute. When we come back, we will be looking at what the deal tells us about Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party. Right, welcome back. It's time now to ask ourselves whether Rishi Sunak has finally ended the Tories' Brexit wars and where Brexit itself has arrived. Gavin is laughing already, which is a very good sign. Looking at the papers, certainly on Wednesday, I think on Tuesday as well, there is this very sort of hyperbolic sense that everything is now laid to rest and the whole political class and the country can somehow move forward and Brexit is at last done. I mean, obviously... The answer to that is that uh, whatever the press and politicians want to be true isn't necessarily true. And in fact, in all the hyperbole surrounding the deal, Rishi Sunak uh, has sort of blown the gaff somewhat. Let's have a listen to him bigging up the amazing position in which Northern Ireland now finds itself. If we get the executive back up and running here, Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. No one. Only you guys, only here. Amazing. Yeah, chef's, chef's kiss. To state the blindingly obvious, as we all know, prior to uh, our exit from the EU, there was another place which had access to the UK market and the EU single market, and that was the United Kingdom. It's amazing that he said that, Raf, isn't it? It's been said before, actually. I mean, occasionally that has come out, and 
The dirty secret of Rishi Sunak's political evolution over the last few years is that he was a kind of unthinking hobbyist, backbench Eurosceptic, understanding you know, he voted leave uh, with an understanding of the European question that was requisite for what you need to get selected in Richmond, Yorkshire as a backbench MP. And then he went on a learning curve uh, in the Treasury and he's and now he's prime minister. And I think he he understands exactly the view. The, the economic importance to the UK of uh, a good and close trading relationship with the European Union, but also the politics make it completely impossible. He can sell that as something that should be in any way immediately available or desirable uh, for the UK. Chutzpah is the word for, for what he said, um, but I think it describes actually a little bit what I was saying before, that at some level you need to think like a Remainer to manage Brexit in any way that isn't just sort of vandalism, arson and diplomatic isolation. But Gavin, the fact that he said that and it's sort of normalised, we all just accept that it's ludicrous and yet he said it and then we all carry on. That does say something, doesn't it, about the contortions of post-Brexit politics? It does, yeah. Look, so I, I'm going to try and defend him for a second, although I basically agree with both what? of you. <laughs> Go on, yes. Well, I basically agree with both of you, but I think it is important to put the caveat, which is, of course that the particular deal that Northern Ireland has isn't available to the rest of us. So there is a, there is a degree of truism in what he's saying, which is it is something unique. If, if, if we asked for exactly what Northern Ireland has for the whole of the UK, it would not be on offer from the EU. Because Northern Ireland, is, it's not actually in the single market. It's, it's effectively in the single market for goods. And it's in there without all of the obligations that would come with it if you were fully in the single market. And the EU wouldn't give that to all of us. But nonetheless... Having made the case to the defence, because I think it's important that someone does, I still think you're right that rhetorically to hear the Prime Minister bigging up the fact that he's given Northern Ireland something really good that the rest of us can't have, it is politically quite awkward. And of course, there's an important point here, since I'm talking basically to Guardian readers, which is at the moment, Labour's policy is the same. Right? So Keir Starmer's not going to call him out on this in the House of Commons. Because he's yeah, basically yeah, in yeah, the same yeah. That's position. what I mean about it being normalised and accepted and, and we all swallow it and move on. Um, the fun and fascination is going to continue. Even among Brexit Tory diehards, there is an obvious sense of complete exhaustion, You know, a real sense that they just want all this to be over. Gavin, you're nodding. Um, and that leads us on to another astonishing clip from uh, so-called Brexit hardman or former Brexit hardman Steve Baker former the chair of the militantly Eurosceptic European Research Group, the ERG, and now a Northern Ireland minister in Rishi Sunak's government. This is what Steve Baker said on Newsnight earlier this week. Seven years of this cost me my mental health. The beard, the jewellery is about me, my recovery. In November 21, I had a major mental health crisis, anxiety and depression. I couldn't go on. People couldn't tell and made a big keynote speech in the afternoon. But make no mistake, holding these tigers by the tail, Brexit... Covid recovery group, net zero scrutiny group, the tax stuff we did with Conservative Way Forward took its toll. We're all only human. And it, the way I've led rebellions, no one should have to do. And this is an important moment for me personally, because I can authentically say he's done it. If only everybody will read the text, think seriously about what an amazing achievement this is, what an incredible opportunity it provides for the people of Northern Ireland and actually for the whole of Europe to move beyond this awful populism we've suffered. Just be sensible and grown up. Do the right thing by 1.9 million people. And the ripple effects for everybody else. You bet I'm emotional because this book ends a seven-year chapter of my life, which I will be glad to close. 
Leaving aside the questions about mental health, I mean, there are all sorts of things to unpick in that. But to zoom out from what Steve Baker said, I wonder what you both think of where the ERG is now. Is that it? Or is this just a a momentary pause? I mean, this is the faction of the Conservative Party that, to my mind, has effectively run the show, right? Well, there's, there's a short answer to that, which is they've still got the retained EU law bill about making its way through Parliament. And and that is a, a terrible, terrible piece of law. And that's that was Jacob Rees-Mogg's legislative pet project. So yes, so from that point of view, no, clearly you know, the, the battle continues. I do think also it's worth pointing out you know, in that, I agree, extraordinary Steve Baker clip, uh, he sort of segued seamlessly from the ERG, COVID recovery group, net zero group. Uh, and that's very interesting because actually... Ostensibly, there's no particular reason why having a Eurosceptic view automatically means you also uh, don't think lockdowns are a good idea and also yeah, yeah. are sceptical about net zero. Like, what, what is the connection there? And, and so the fact that they are seen as a, as a sort of a culture war bundle uh, is very interesting. And in a sense, you know, if I were Rishi Sunak, what would worry me is that, uh, you know, sort of the, the rebellious impulse, I mean, Steve Baker aside, uh, in the Conservative Party, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the first law of thermodynamics. The energy never gets destroyed. It just gets transferred to somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because your argument is that the ERG is a sort of way of being. It runs so deep within these people, they're not going to stop behaving like that. So I think I think you've got to sort of disaggregate certain things here, right? So rebelliousness of Conservative MPs, I don't think that is going to decline a lot. You know, I think intake by intake, they have become less defer- deferential, All right, So... The party management difficulties across the board are not going to disappear overnight. On Europe, my view would be this is a sort of partial, partial pause, right? It, it settles the, the key issue that was outstanding. I agree with what Raf said about the retained law bill, but it sort of settles where the Conservative Party is now up to the next election. I think that the real challenge the party is going to have is if public opinion continues to move against the, the relationship that we have at the moment. You know, there is a real danger for the Conservative Party that its current preference for a distant economic relationship is going to become its version of unilateral nuclear disarmament, a policy that about a third of the electorate like and the rest look on in complete bemusement at. And it's clear that there are some people quite senior in the government who think actually this is doing some economic harm, but they're politically boxed in about that. So I don't think it ends the argument for all time, John but it pauses it for the, probably for till now in the next election. Let's talk about Boris Johnson. I mean, prior to this deal landing and being as well-received as it has been, there was this idea that Boris Johnson was somehow going to come roaring back and this would be his great opportunity. There have been reports, or there were reports, I think, uh, prior to the deal's announcement or the, or the sense that it had been very well-received, that Boris Johnson was talking to the DUP and urging them to be cautious about the deal. It is said now that, He's realised that any rebellion on the deal would be so small, it's sort of beneath him to get involved. And you do get the sense that this idea that Boris Johnson somehow was going to align everything in his favour and try and come back as Tory leader and overthrow Rishi Sunak, as as ludicrous as that may have seemed, that's definitely, definitely finished now. And and that he's, he's more marginal than he's been since he left office. Ultimately, Boris Johnson's biggest investment now, and what's always been in his own vanity, he would rather it were true that the Conservatives lose 
and lost because they never went back to him and they were foolish enough to defenestrate him than ever sort of take responsibility. Uh, and and yeah, so he doesn't want to, he doesn't actually necessarily want to come back. I don't think uh, if it means actually owning any of the, any of the mess he's created, he will continue to be a kind of a slightly malevolent marauding presence, but one that is always inflated and aggrandized by a small number of people and has less purchase on the conservative party than he and others like to pretend. Yeah, yeah, but there's there's much less scope now, Gavin, for him to be inflated and aggrandised. That's the point, isn't it? Yes, it, it definitely it definitely reduces the prospect. But I think I would I would say two things. That quote you read out from allies of his that he decided not to rebel on this now because not many people were involved. That's why I read it, it tells out. Tells you everything that you need to know about the man. All right, it's not about what's right for the country or what's right for Northern Ireland or whether this is a sensible policy. It's about what opportunity is there for Boris Johnson. And that's what it's always been about. That's what it was about in 2016 in the referendum. That's what it was about at Chequers. Um, but I would say to you, I don't think the possibility has gone away totally. And the reason for that is that the big question that I think a lot of people in Westminster are asking is, OK, Sunak has done something quite impressive and he showed his calibre, he showed that a grasp and attention to detail, all the things we were talking about, has delivered a result. Does it make any difference in the polls? Is there any political benefit to the Conservative Party from this. And if there isn't, and the council elections are very bad, don't discount the ability of the Conservative Party to panic. I mean, one of the things I always say to people, having spent my life in it, is it has two default settings, and it has to be in one of these default settings. It's either ludicrously complacent or it's panicking. And the, if, if it's tipped into panic mode, there will be some people who will say Boris Johnson probably can't win the next election, but he guarantees a minimum level of performance because he's political marmite and, and he could save some of us our seats. So you're definitely right that this episode has taken away something he was hoping might help him. But I don't think you can say definitively it kills off the prospect altogether. OK, that's, I mean, that's a good last point to briefly discuss. This sense, really, that uh, politicians... And political journalists, quite rightly, perhaps as we've already established, um, are really bigging up what Rishi Sunak's managed to achieve. You know, it's his first great triumph. He's done what his predecessors didn't want to do and and benefits will throw from that and all the rest of it. But it's not like people are walking around <laughs> Stoke-on-Trent or Middlesbrough or Lib Dem Tory marginals in the southwest of England or any of the places that, that will decide the next election and saying, God, I really must reconsider my view of that, Mr. Sunak. He hasn't half done well, right? This is quite as important as it is in electoral terms. This is still quite niche. Well, I saw a very interesting graph the other day showing that there's the salience of Europe as an issue uh, is now back down where it was in around sort of 2015 or, or earlier. So if you ask people what are the things you care about most, obviously they, they might say the NHS, they might say the economy, cost of living. Way down there is Europe. Europe was always down there. And actually, the thing that transformed Europe from being a low order issue to a high order issue was a couple of things. First of all, they, there was a referendum about it, so it necessarily became a high order issue. Second of all, the, the connection was made brilliantly by Nigel Farage between Europe and immigration, which will continue to be a strong issue. But now those have been decoupled and disaggregated again because actually small boats is not a Brexit issue. So Europe is, is secondary to that. Um, and then during the Brexit parliamentary wars, Europe was a, was a became an expression of general political dysfunctionality and the mess we were in. So none of those things pertain now. So the short answer, John, yes, I don't think there's a big political dividend uh, immediately for Rishi Sunak in getting a deal 
especially not when it's Northern Ireland, because also Northern Ireland is something that most English voters don't understand or care about that much. Um, I do think there is a second sort of knock on effect where if he's managed to impress the Conservative Party that he can be an effective leader and they sort of shut up and do as he says for a while, then that can then start to have a positive impact. But he has to do that next stage bit. And there's no evidence yet that he, that he can or has has done that. But it's certainly available to him in a way that it wasn't four days ago. And I wonder, and that's the last question, really, Gavin, I suppose, is, is he still dead and buried politically when we look towards the next, next election? Or do you think this conceivably might open up the way to some sort of revival? He's definitely in a very deep hole. Um, but I don't think you can say he's dead and buried yet. You know, I think Ralph's right. On, on the substance of the issue is not of saliness to lots of voters. There is a possibility that some voters will like the fact that he's taken an issue that's sort of bedeviled our politics and caused endless rowing and made it go away so that we can focus on the stuff they care about. There might be some credit from that. To, I mean, to me, the million dollar question about our politics at the moment, John, is whether we're at one of those Jim Callaghan turning point moments, whether at the next election, actually, lots of people in this country might say, you know, that Rishi Sunak has done a pretty good job. He's, he's significantly stabilised the situation from the complete mess he inherited from Johnson and Truss. And I admire him for that, but it's still time for a change and the Conservative Party needs to go away and work out what it's for. And that, I think, is probably what he and Jeremy Hunt will fear, that they could do a good, competent job, that they could give Starmer a much better inheritance than he might have got if he'd taken over immediately from Liz Truss, but, but maybe not get that much political credit for it because the voters have just decided it's a tipping point and it's time for a change. And, and we'll know um, over the next few months, I think, you know, we'll see as this year goes on where we are. We will be here every week discussing precisely that. Thank you so much for listening. More to the point. Thank you for joining us, Gavin and Raf. Thank you. That pleasure. As ever. I hope you enjoyed today's episode out there. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 